Welcome to the Mad Singers Management Podcast from madsingers.com, where entrepreneurs and business managers learn and share. If you like the show, don't forget to leave a review. Hello, and welcome to this next episode on the Mad Singers Management Podcast. Today, I have with me Michael, and Michael is a business flipper, buyer and seller of websites, and Michael, welcome to the show. Hi, Mads. Glad to be here. Excellent, Michael. So I'd love for you to tell the audience a little bit more about yourself so that they get to know you a little bit and your background and so on. Sure. So I run a private equity firm called The Main Magnate. We specialize on buying and managing content businesses. We, we have a fund. We start a our first fund earlier this year, and it has a little over $1 million in assets and capital now. And we are preparing to start our second fund now as well. So we, we raise some capital, we go and buy the best deals that we can find. And then we grow, improve those websites and resell them for a profit. And that's what I've been involved in doing for about uh, 15 years now and we have a small team it's around 10 people and also some uh, contractors and some freelancers as well so i'm excited cool. to get into it and talk more about that definitely yeah it sounds super exciting so i'll, I'll jump right in and basically see like you, you said you raise raise money for a fund like how, how how do you go about raising money like how did you go about it specifically yeah so i uh, i've been doing it for a while but i've only started working with investors last year actually because i i always thought in you know until recently that I don't need capital, I don't need investors. Like I know that the deals we are doing are very good. So why would I want to go and share the, the profits with someone? But then we had a few really good deals but we just didn't have enough capital for uh, like a mid six figures. And I realized that in order to move forward, we really need investors. And I've always had people coming up to me and asking, hey, Michael, like what you're doing is so great. How can I invest? And I used to tell them, uh, like, just send me an email and, you know, maybe I'll get back to you later once I decide to accept investors. So when I finally did decide to, to get started with that, uh, first thing I did was <laughs> I Googled how to start a fund because <laughs> I had no idea about that. And then I, love I it. just said, <laughs> yeah, then I just, yeah, that wasn't very useful, by the way. <laughs> Then I sent an email to our small list telling people that we are starting to accept investors and basically just explain how it is because I didn't really know yet how it's going to look. So we, uh, we had a few people that filled the form and kind of expressed interest and then we talked with a few and we had some group conversations where I explained how, it's, how I expect to work and then some individual calls and ended up with one investor and then another one, another one. And then it sort of rolled into a fund. So it just kind of happened, uh, I guess, more like more naturally. Yep. There wasn't a lot of uh, long-term planning, you know, so more like uh, seeing how it goes. Yeah. Very interesting. Very interesting. So are you buying... So, so basically, instead of having one investor fund one side, you're basically building it more as a fund where people own a percentage of things and then basically they either get the return. So when you sell, they get, uh, again, a percentage of the money. How, how do you run that? Yeah, exactly like that. So they have uh, their equities proportional to their capital contribution and they the investors are not involved in managing. We do all the managing. The investors are involved in some decisions, in some buying decisions. So yep. in that first fund, we have a criteria that up to a certain amount we can buy without uh, asking them. And you know, above a certain amount, we would have to get them to, to review it and accept it, accept the deal. 
and then they get uh, we we provide um, uh, reports and uh, capital and profit distributions every quarter. And once we sell the businesses, uh, the investors have a choice if they just want to get the cash, the profits, or if they want to reinvest that. And so far, the people have chosen to reinvest everything. Nice. That's good. That's good. Okay. I, I think that was, that's a very interesting business model. I, I see a lot of companies starting to do that sort of thing, and, but I find, it, I find it really interesting because I see a lot of companies can benefiting from this, right? Like even buying and selling sites, like more and more companies get to situations where where they can really benefit big time, right? Like so, so I've had a bunch of e-commerce clients who've started buying sites to to drive traffic, like affiliate sites to drive traffic either to their store or to Amazon. And you, you know, I see a lot of different niches sort of starting to wake up and realize that there, there is an interesting potential. Mm-hmm. Obviously, it's not necessarily that straightforward, but uh, but yeah, that's very interesting. And I mean, you, you've been in this game for many years. Like, when, when did you first start? When did you buy your first site, Michael? Yeah, absolutely. I started around 2004, 2005. I started by building some sites, and then, uh, then I had some, some more money from the revenues. I started buying some sites. And the market has changed dramatically. Like everything is different because back then there was no no market, no marketplaces, no brokers. You only had forums, and you could just contact some site owners and ask if they want to sell. And you know there were no kind of established multiples or anything like that. So it's just all a negotiation. And now things are a lot more structured. Uh, yeah, and. Uh, there are, yeah, there are indeed many companies that, uh, that do this kind of things now, many companies starting funds, many people that, that go and start buying businesses and invest in that. And before we, before we started the fund, I actually, I think I actually spoke with you about that as well. You gave me some interesting advice because you had some experience with, with funds too previously. Yep. Okay. Yeah, and also... Yeah, and also I got a chance to speak with a few other people that, that, that run funds and um, I got some, some interesting advice. And what I've learned that it's really important to kind of to align the incentives because, you know, in the traditional, uh, traditional VC and private equity world, the, the manager just gets a, you know, a fixed fee and a percentage of, of, like of a profit. So that's kind of a good idea, but in some funds, the, the management is not as incentivized to, to, to have profits or the incentive might be more short-term compared to long-term if they don't have as much equity participation. So that's something I was kind of thinking about quite a bit uh, when we were trying to figure out what's the best structure to set it up. Yeah, and, and I mean, we, we actually have a scenario that I've seen a bunch of times, right? Like, you you know, very frequently with Google updates and whatnot. Uh, one one of the things I see is when when you have a fund manager who's responsible for a site, if that site suddenly get hit by or whatever Google update or whatever, um, and and they're far from their starting point, what happens is that kind of removes a lot of their. Uh, incentive to work on the site, particularly if they work like managing multiple sites, because they don't get a benefit right away. They have to first get up to a starting point, and then they start getting percentages, right? And and I've definitely seen uh, quite a few examples where that have kind of made it a very bad deal, right? Like I've both seen like SEOs yeah. making deals with with site owners, but I've also seen it from a from from companies that you know operate with multiple clients and and do a similar model that you have but instead of doing it as a fund they they basically have individuals investing in individual sites and and the key challenge is that you, you know if you're pr- primarily benefiting from um from from upside like if you're getting a percentage of increase and the site drops big time, that kind of really removes your, uh, it, not totally removes, but it, it takes away some of your incentive at least, which, you know, makes it more difficult for, for individuals to, to perform in that way. So, 
Yeah, and uh, we, we actually also do that as well. So we have a couple of services. The fund is one thing. Another thing is the buy and manage service that we do for individual buyers and buy business and manage it for them. And yep. we also have, uh, we buy some businesses directly for ourselves. So in, in all those, we really try to, to align incentives to prevent this kind of cases because we did have we did have some sites drop in Google updates and we usually try to participate in the equity as well, because then we'll be also participate in the risks, not only the yep. rewards. And that also makes sense. make sure that, yeah, like that most of, uh, most of our profit is generated from, from the profits of the business, not just, you know, the, the fees. And yep. that really incentivizes us to, you know, go and figure out how to fix that website. So we had, for example, one website that was making about uh, three, four thousand dollars per month, and then it got hit by Google update. Uh, I think it was like, like half a year ago, and we uh, we reviewed everything. They fixed it all up. You know, disavowed all the links, submitted a reintroduction request. And later it was approved, so the site cut back most of its traffic. But it, it certainly was that like that structure incentivized us to, to really go and fix it as soon as possible. Yeah. Okay, that's good. That's that's a good way of doing it. Uh, what what do you generally look for, Michael, when you're buying a business or buying a site? Like, is there any sort of particular requirements that that you're looking at? First of all, we currently focus just on content sites. So content sites with organic traffic, mostly it's affiliate sites. We also sometimes buy SaaS businesses, but they usually also have to have some content and organic traffic component. So that's one thing. We don't really do e-commerce. We don't do a lot of other type of businesses. Yep. And that allows us to really you know, generate some, some advantages have a good team and have all those things ready to manage those efficiently. And we have, uh, we have a, a framework that we've developed that we use to evaluate deals because our team looks at hundreds of deals. So it's important to be able to be efficient. And yep. that framework is pretty simple. So it consists of, of, of three, three things to, to look at. First is the numbers and the numbers might mean looking, of course, at the price, at the multiple, at the revenues, but also the trends, and noticing industry trends, business trends, like that. And then we evaluate the risks to understand what are the main risks, how to mitigate them. And then they look at opportunities. How can we grow it? How can we improve it? And through a combination of these three, uh, we can assess whether that's a good deal or not so good. Yep, that that makes sense. That makes sense. Okay, Michael, that's that's great. What have you ever bought site that come with a team? Yeah, we we had a few deals like those, but usually we we prefer kind of not to, unless mm -hmm. you know the team is very good and and it's easy to to integrate because we try to we try to. Our main goal really is to get really good at what we are doing. And that means to keep improving our team, to keep improving our systems. Uh, so mostly we try to handle them ourselves. We had yep. quite a few sites that came with, uh, not, not like a big team, but a few freelancers, a few contacts, maybe some partners. And then um, we just try to put that into an agreement and figure out how to continue the structure. But yep. generally, uh, we try to keep things simple. Like we try to keep the deals simple to have fewer, fewer, you know, fewer people, fewer things involved. Nice, very good. Okay, that sounds good. Um, then, from a again, from a management standpoint, like how do you look at your team, and what sort of your sort of high-level philosophy in, in getting the most out of your team from a management standpoint? So I would say there are two books that really affected my 
my thinking in that in that way. The first one was winning by Jack Welch. Yeah. And I quite liked his, his management style. So for, for your listeners who might not, not know about him, he was a really influential uh, management leader. He led uh, uh, he led General Electric, I think. <laughs> I'm not sure now. Uh, G- GM, GM, it's called. Yeah, yeah, and he uh, and he had an am- some amazing results during during his period. So he developed a whole management style. And uh, the other book I liked is Principles by uh, Ray Dalio. And and I guess the third thing is just my own experience. So like. Uh, uh, doing making a lot of mistakes <laughs> and trying to learn from them very quickly because I understood that when I made a hiring mistake, when I made a management mistake, the costs are very high. Yep. So it's, it, it really incentivizes you to learn very quickly. Yep. Yeah, and that's, I mean, obviously we have spoken about that in the past, but I, I think for me, it's probably the most, well, one of the most valuable skills as a business owner and a manager, you can invest in improving, right? Because fundamentally, if you get recruitment wrong, like, yeah, the, the costs are just high and turn around. When you get recruitment right, your life is so much easier, Right. Like it yeah. makes such yeah. a huge difference when you when you manage to hit the right, um, yeah, when you manage to get the right people on board, right? Yeah, what what I'm noticing is that as our company grows, like the bigger it becomes, uh, it's just the more it is about people. And I think yeah. like once you go beyond a certain point, you know, a point that the 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 founder, the owner, still does most part of the work. Once you go beyond that, it's just all about people. There is only people. Yeah, there is only people and systems, and people are like most of that. Yeah, and I, I kind of have this like most businesses struggle at three levels when they get to ten people, and that's often the point where where the founders' time and energy stops. Like they they most people can't manage more than 10 people and they can't like they can't run faster than that right so around 10 people they usually you know start getting exhausted and and generally what happens in most cases is the business just stops growing right because the very often the the business owner is still constantly trying to 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 do the work right and be an influential part of the team and and at that point the business owners really have to get out like it's a benefit if they learn to get out and learn to delegate and so on earlier but at that point they usually hit like a growth ceiling right and then it happens again when you get to about 20 to 25 and that's when you know the manager sort of stops being able to touch everyone or the owner stop, start, sort of isn't really able to know every person really well and so on anymore, right? So even when they start to try and move a little bit away, like that's another step at that point where, you know, they really have to rely on, and most importantly, they need to build the systems uh, from a management standpoint that other people can run and that other people can actually keep pushing things downwards, Right. And then when you get to about 50, you get another one of those hits. And that, that's typically when the layers between the founder themselves and the rest of the company start becoming so big, right? That the, the founder's messages are very often, or the, the founder's direction is often not relate to the team in the right way if they haven't built like a really strong management team and a really strong management structure of how to communicate things, right? So that that's typically the three areas where I see, you know, things going sideways sometimes. Yeah, that's, that's very interesting. Uh, so we are somewhere... Uh, around 10 a little bit more maybe and that's i'm definitely seeing that i'm curious about your observations on um, on uh, how that changes in in companies where the founder creates the systems versus the founders trying to find us to hire some people that would come and create those systems yeah, I, I think honestly, for me, it's not as much about the systems. It's more learning to let go of the responsibility and the ownership all the time, right? Because what happens to most business owners is they end up becoming the, 
I call it spider in the middle, but but effectively what happens is that, you, you know, they're sitting in the middle with their 10, 20 legs, trying to manage all these people, trying to give them tasks, trying to tell them what to do. And and the thing is, like, when, when you get to that level, that's not possible, right? So the, the only way to grow out of that issue is is fundamentally by, by delegating a lot more, but not just delegating the task delegating the actual responsibility right because a, a lot of time like particularly online people constantly hear us like oh yeah you should uh you should sort of you, you should dele- just build an sop and give it to someone but the problem is when you build an sop and give it to someone what what happens is that they they don't take ownership and they don't get the responsibility. They just get the SOP and it basically just says, okay, you go do this thing 20 times a day or whatever, right? And what happens when, when that's the case is that they, they don't feel the ownership and they don't have the ownership. So every time there's a question, every time something goes wrong, they always go back to Mr. Owner and say, oh, sir, you know, I did this thing and this happened and, you know, what do I do next? So it always comes back to the owners. And instead of that individual taking ownership and saying, hey, in this case, the process was couldn't be followed because X, Y, Z, you know, wh- what do I do to fix this problem? What is the solutions that I should be looking for, right? That, uh, f- for me, that's what happens in most cases. And that's, uh, that's the big challenges most people face but i think uh, at least based on the way you're talking it definitely seemed like you have you have learned to to let go a bit and, and delegate right which which is the first critical steps where where most people really struggle significantly right yeah i've struggled with that for a very long time i think that was a very important lesson for me to learn to understand the distinction between delegating tasks and responsibilities i think it has taken me like more than 10 years to, to actually understand because only in the last few years I've really I mean, like, like started to notice the, the huge difference and when you really give employees uh, a sense of responsibility and, and tell them, and now I try to be very explicit about that. So I tell them like, this is now your responsibility. Like this is the area of your responsibilities. So, you know, you are the person that makes decisions you don't have to ask me, you don't have to ask other managers. And like, this is what's expected. These are the kind of the outcomes and really kind of talk them through this to explain the concept. Um, and yeah, it, it definitely works well if you have the right people, the right roles, it's amazing. But I also found that sometimes uh, it's just not a good fit and then you see it quickly and then it's important to fix that quickly. And, 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 and I would say, as I said earlier, having the right people make life a lot easier, right? So, yeah. again, if you have a good framework for doing things, if you have a good framework for how you manage people, again, you can take mediocre people and make them great. Uh, if you don't have a framework, uh, even great people will often struggle. Right. And when I say framework, what I mean specifically, it's not SOPs, but I mean a framework of how you manage people, of how you give people responsibility, of how you keep them accountable. Right. That, that for me, that's the framework that's critical. It's not like, again, in, in small businesses, when the founders sit down and do the SOPs, that it makes sense. Right, because they, they have the knowledge and, and generally you, you don't when you give people new responsibilities, you don't want them to start from scratch. I mean there's no point in them not learning from your from your experience, right? But you definitely want to make sure that uh, you know you're you're very very clear about the way you give them responsibility and so on and then uh, generally for me it's it's doing it step by step right like some some people can handle a lot of responsibility out of the gate but a lot of the time people haven't been used to it right like even even in corporate america like like a lot of people haven't been used to getting significant level of responsibility. It's usually why people love smaller businesses because smaller business owners that are good are often forced or or they're often pushing out responsibility to much lower level than you would have in big corporation where it's like, you know, you do customer service if anything costs more than four, 
417, you know, you need to check with your boss if you're allowed to make the decision on it and all that stupid crap, right? Um, So, like, that's, yeah, at least that's, that's what I see most of the time. Yeah, I try to do it like that. I think that's certainly something that I'm still learning about uh, all the time. So that's, uh, so that's, and I think it's really important having a good management style, having a good framework. Uh, so I'm, I'm very much open to, uh, to advice on that. I think, uh, the, I think the, the main thing I, I try to do is just try to find people who are really good, really smart especially people who are just better than me at, at things. Like for example, our people that do SEO, they are just a lot better than me at SEO. They, they know it better. They are more up to date. So I know that I, it just wouldn't make sense for me to go and write any SOPs because like, they know more about it. Yeah. And that, this, is, this is where how you found the company is interesting. Like, you, you definitely knew a bunch of SEO when you were buying sites, right? But you, yeah. you weren't necessarily the world's number one SEO guru, right? Yeah. And, and I think uh, that the challenge for a lot of people is when you are, maybe not the world's number one, but when you are really, really, really good at something, it makes it that much harder to let it go. Right, because what what happens for business owners is that you know they get some success and they feel that they get the success because of who they are and because of their skill set, which is the case in many cases, right? But the problem is because they get the initial success because of their skill set, it makes it so much harder for them to actually let go of being the expert. It makes it so much harder for them to let go because. You know, when you get success because of X, you want to continue doing X. And uh, that, there's actually a great book um, called uh, What Got You Here Won't Get You There by um, Marshall Goldsmith. And it's not specifically on that point, on that topic, but it's just as relevant to that topic. Right. And, and the whole concept is that, you know, for example, in business, like sometimes people manage to get into a position of management because they're super, super aggressive. Right. Or because they're willing to trample other people or, you know, that they're doing something that, you know, get them some initial traction, initial success, they feel. But the thing is, it, what got them to that first job or what got them to that first stage might actually be something that inhibits them from moving to the next stage instead of helping them. But because they get the initial success from that, they they keep believing that they get the initial success because they're being an asshole to people, for example, Mm -hmm. right? Whereas really they got the initial success because they're able to deliver result despite being an asshole to people. But, but from a human belief system, that can be very difficult to turn around, right? And you really need to see it happening. So there's a lot of people that really sort of struggle with that mindset, right? They're like, oh, but, you know, I built this company being a great SEO, so I have to, do, I have to be the one doing SEO. And the thing is, if you want to do SEO, or if you want to do be the e-commerce guy, right? If you want to run a business, you have to become a CEO, not a SEO, right? And obviously, it's not like a straightforward from one day to, to the other. You go from one to, to the other, right? It's not like that. But you have to start building and developing the skills. So as, as and when the business keeps going and gets big enough, you have the ability to, to start moving into that direction, right? And, and stop being the... And, and that's really what happens. Stop being the bottleneck at every piece of the process, right? Because what, what happens is at some point in business, the business outgrows you and you're the bottleneck. When, when stuff start, stops growing because you are the ones that people are sitting waiting for your decisions all the time, you're actually holding the company back. You're not moving the company forward, right? And I think that distinction and that understanding is is definitely so critical right and it, it so many people really struggle with right yeah that's uh, i think that's very relevant for me as well because i'm seeing that i'm a bottleneck in some things well i've delegated most of the responsibilities to to our team um yep. 
because what what we do is really difficult. You know, then you compare uh, being in private equity to most traditional businesses. They do services. They have specific packages. They have services. You know, clients uh, clients pay and and they just deliver. And what we do is a lot more complicated because we have to find deals, we have to review deals, we have to make deals, and there is negotiation, there is structure. So there is the the figuring out, the finding the good deals, and then there is a management, and then there is a selling, and then there is the management side, the investor side, the financial sides to this. So I still there are still decisions I have to make all the time. And I'm how, how, how do you how do you make those decisions easier, Michael? That's a good question. That's that's very much something that I am thinking about these days a lot. I don't have a good answer yet. I have a have an answer. <laughs> I guess the, just having some some frameworks and having some kind of preliminary requirements for those decisions helps make them faster. Again, like the, the, the one way I would go around it, right? A again, what you want to do is you want to start preparing for you not being part of this, even if you s see yourself be part of this for the significant future. And, and the way I look at it is you, you want as much of the work done up front as possible. So uh, let's, let's take a scenario. So let's say figuring out exactly what bit you're willing to pay for a site so like let's say a site is 500k yeah. right that's a really important business decision so figuring out exactly what you guys are willing to bid for the site would be one of those decisions that you probably end up making now that decision can obviously take you a while but the more of the work before that decision that have been done up front the less work you need to do to evaluate that deal the faster it becomes for you to do that work. And most importantly, the, the better you train someone else in actually doing those assessments, right? So as an example, um, if you have someone saying, okay, dude, your responsibility long-term will be doing these deals. Initially, I still want to approve them. Here's the system that I go through for approving deals, right? I want you to run this system. I want you to come up with recommendations for me for every deal on what you think is the right choice. But what that enables you to do, Michael, is you can literally sit down, you can look at the deal generally in the way you want to look at it, and you get a recommendation, which means if you are happy with that recommendation, all you need to do is say yes. So rather than you having to do go in, do a bunch of analysis, if all that stuff is done by someone else up front, it makes your decision and it makes the time that decision take significantly faster. And it developed a guy who is eventually going to take over from you making those decisions because you keep seeing his recommendation. And when you see deal after deal after deal, eventually he will start getting to a uh, ideally, he'll start getting to a very similar point as you in terms of what he's willing to pay for each deal. Does that make sense? Yeah, this is this is actually exactly how it works right now. So we have we have a guy Colton who's a deal manager, and he's responsible for for evaluating deals, for doing all the calls, for reviewing details, <clears throat> and we have a couple more people in the deal flow department that involved in due diligence, preparing all the data, researching the, the deals. <coughs> and then he would usually submit uh, for, kind of for my approval, unless it's, if it's something small, he can go and make an offer himself, like relatively yeah. small. If it's something bigger, he would send me the information, submit for my approval to, to present an offer. And that's, that's exactly how it works. There is still okay. a bit of a bottleneck because for me, what I've realized is even if I look at, at some brief data, I still feel that I have to get the whole picture in order to be able to really assess a business better. Uh, so I'm still like not completely willing to let go, uh, you know, in that department, the deal making, because that's, that's sort of my main skill. That's where my main experience is. You know, then it comes to SEO, 
I know our guys are better, so I'm not really micromanaging anything. But when it comes to deal making, I'm still a lot more involved, I guess, than I would. When I should what, 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 what is the data that you feel isn't there? Like, what is the things you go and look at? When, when I used to do deals on my own, I would, you know, I would speak with the seller and we would usually speak, we would have a chat or we would have a call. And it's, it's a sense that you develop, it's a gut feeling that you develop when you interact with the person directly. And then you kind of know, like you ask some questions and you know, for example, you would know from the reactions that, okay, this, uh, like these backlinks might be a problem. That's something we have to look into. Or like this person is looking to sell quickly, so he might want to, so he might accept a low price. And, you know, then you speak directly, you pick up on things like that. And then I just look at data. It's a bit more difficult for me to do that. Does that make sense? Yeah. I, so how do you develop that in your team? Uh, by training other people to do that. But I guess it's still difficult for me to, to give up the, the control of that because uh, that is, again, my, my main skill. Like, that's my main experience. Yeah. I think so, also the, like, yeah, like having good frameworks. So that framework that we have for evaluating deals, we try to, to use that and implement that within the team. So, so what, you, what you're saying right now is the main bottleneck. You, you still call up yourself and, and talk with sellers. Is that correct? No, no. Uh, uh, that's that's done by other people. I still have to approve decisions and to approve like buying decisions or, or making offers. It's not it's not a major bottleneck. I would say it's just uh, I'm still kind of looking on the path to to replace myself as you know, in the day to day work. So this is one of those things that I still haven't completely figured out how to replace. So it's not a like a constant presence, but that's something that I have to do like maybe every other day or so. Okay. And like what, what I would look at is the, the additional data, what, whatever you do outside, like if there's something that you feel is missing when, you know, when you get the data, if you feel there's something that takes you a significant amount of time to do, because you, usually procrastination comes in when things are difficult. Like if you literally have to reply to an email and say yes or no, that generally is an easy move, right? And that it, it most of the time as a business owner doing that, one doesn't take a long time and, and hold you up so much. And, and two, it's like mentally, it's a fairly quick thing to do, right? So it's usually done fast. Usually where people get held up is if they want to start go looking at other data or if they feel there's something missing. And, and generally, again, the trick is to make sure whatever it is you generally feel is missing, make sure that gets included in the future for reviews, right? And I know you can't necessarily include everything yeah. all the time, but but that's really the, the mindset, right? So if you feel that there's something that, you know, isn't covered well, then you want to add that to the flow as well, right? Yeah, that's that's how we do it now as well. So I would look at, also recently we've implemented a structure to do a PML for, for every deal that that's in the offer stage. So I would look at the PML, I would look at some of the screenshots, and I would look at some of those uh, Google Analytics data that they use our special dashboard to, to collect. And if I'm feeling that I need some more details, I would maybe go and actually look at the Google Analytics uh, in, in the account, or I would maybe look at the chats or some other things. So it's, yeah, it's basically like that. And it also depends on how big the deal is, it depends on how complicated it is. And, you know, if it's um, if it's an uh, Amazon affiliate site, that's pretty easy because we bought and sold so many of those. But if it's something kind of complicated that has social traffic, organic traffic, paid traffic, and it's in a niche like like music that I honestly don't know much about, like that would uh, still require more research for me. Definitely. Yeah. Okay. That that makes a lot of sense. That makes a lot of sense. Okay, that that's good. Um, 
what's the biggest management challenge that you feel you've faced in your business and, and what did you do to overcome it? I like that question. I guess there is a couple of those. The one is, I think, getting my team to be more, uh, like more upfront, more, uh, basically like just sharing things upfront, then they have a problem, then they have a challenge. Because a lot of the time what happens is, you know, you give someone a responsibility, a deadline or a task or things like that, and they just say, okay, yes. But then it's not done on time. So, so I try to figure out what happened and why and kind of try to resolve it. And it, it doesn't happen very often, but I would definitely always prefer to have some, uh, to have them tell me up front, like, Michael, I think I'm not going to be able to finish that. Or, Michael, I find that very challenging. Like, this is very time consuming. So, figuring out how to uh, how to get our team to be a lot more transparent and upfront about those things. That's one challenge. Yep. And I'm curious to hear your input on that. And the yep. other one is, I guess, right now, uh, figuring out how to, how to recruit, how to find a person that's going to manage operations, sort of like, a, like an operations manager, like a COO, um, and like figuring out what kind of person that would be and how to how to find them and how to set that up. So that's my current challenge. Yeah. Okay, so like I guess with the first one, right, like getting people to be upfront, th this is also a bit of a learning exercise because very often people don't know upfront if it's going to be an issue or not, right? Because what, one of the things with, with most people is they, they haven't been given responsibility to think so much. They haven't generally been given, uh, just in general, as much responsibility as, as you generally want to give them as a business owner. So they haven't been used to thinking, how long does this take? You know, am I going to make the, meet this with the deadline? So for a lot of people, this will actually be like a, how do you say that? Like a, an education. Right. So just like, for example, when you start talking, talking to yourself, that sounds a bit schizophrenic, but when you start thinking about it yourself, like when you're a business owner, you always think of like, how long would this take to deliver? And the thing is, in the beginning of your career, you will often shoot way wrong more than when you've been doing and delivering the same thing again and again, because the more time you do it, the more uh, consistent you get with it. Right. So one of the key things is actually basically helping them learn and understand this skill set of, you know, learning to predict how long does things take, learning to prioritize based on how much there is to do, uh, and, and learning these various skill sets, right, that basically enables them to be better at predicting is, am I going to be able to do this in time, right? So I, I see it in a lot of businesses. I see this really as a skill set that needs to be developed. It's not necessarily something people have and they just hide it from you like it's not like generally it's not like people are just not yeah. telling you it's as much because they don't know right so actually getting people encouraging people to learn and encouraging people to that that's the framework you're looking for is key and then helping them along the way to really get into that mindset right that's how you build that sort of um, culture in the business and that's how you from a longer term stand longer perspective, you, you basically build those habits, right? So when new people come in, like if your team is used to saying, okay, the way we work is, you know, whenever we get work, we try and estimate how long does it take? And we, when, when we have a specific deadline, we then try and see, well, can we fix that deadline in with everything else we have? And if we believe it's not reasonable, then, you know, straight away, as soon as we know, we go back and we tell our manager, right? That's our culture. That's how we operate. So, um, like, it, it is for me really a cultural thing. It's it's something you need to build into a team over a period of time. It's not necessarily just you know tell them the right words and they'll magically say it because most of the time it is really lack of knowledge and lack of experience in in doing those specific things, right? Yeah, that's that's absolutely. That was also my idea. That was my plan how to do it. I guess with, with some uh, some people, some of our team members are a lot more 
aware of those things. So they, their sure. estimates are usually very accurate. Like they tell me, okay, this is going to take two days and it, it takes two days. Like they, take, they say it's going to take a week and it takes a week. But uh, others are, are a bit less so. And um, it just comes down to, to also those personal qualities to, to knowing your team, understanding your team. Uh, but I guess it's, you know, getting the culture right, the, right that's, that's one of the biggest challenges as well. So that's uh, certainly a, a work in progress. Yeah. Yeah, that's, that's true. Um, I, I think fundamentally, like, again, it is a learning experience. Like, I, I love developing people, right? And I, I really, like, enjoy that learning people go through generally. But uh, yeah, I mean, it's definitely it's definitely something you need to keep working on, and it's definitely whenever you have a culture, right? You you need to keep fostering that until the culture is strong enough to foster itself, right? And what I mean with that is you you need to keep pushing the points, you need to keep showing the great example. Like one of, one of my favorite ways of, of actually pushing out culture is showing people bring out great example and saying hey you guys know how we always do this one thing here's an example where joe went and did this thing and life is amazing and our clients are happy and you know so you like when you're building up culture like that you want to keep bringing out great examples that showcase where that culture that sort of perspective was being used and you want to keep bringing that up for a period of time because it takes it, it's one of these things like when business owner says, oh, my door is always open and, you know, he never have time to talk to you, right? That It's like one of those things where people people need to see it to actually believe in it because a lot of companies have a lot of fluffy cultures and a lot of fluffy things they say on a piece of paper, but that doesn't necessarily mean that that's how the operation operates. So you need to show people that that, that is how you do operate, Right. Yeah, that's that's a good idea. I I don't think I do that. Uh, so that's that's something I will definitely look into doing, like bringing up some great examples of how people follow our culture and do things right, and kind and of the, doing it publicly. I mean, I imagine, right? It, it's the strongest way of doing it, right? So I mean, you you can have different ways of doing it, but 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 bringing out those examples uh, is really key for other people, and and. Again, often you need to do it a lot more than once. It's not just a once-off. But when you see great examples, like if you have something that you feel, you know, isn't isn't currently where it needs to be from a cultural standpoint, you really want to focus on that. You want to, like, you, you can talk to people and say, you know, we're really looking to make sure that this thing you know, this cultural aspect that we have in the business that we, we're really making sure everyone's clear on it, right? And like I've, I've worked with businesses who would literally start every company meeting, uh, like reading over their company mission, mission values, right? Uh, and like, I, I don't necessarily think you need to go to that end degree, but there's a lot of value in not just saying them, but actually saying them. And then, for example, within meetings, when you have a tough decision to make, bring them out and say, well, how would that align with our values? Like, if we follow our values, what would be the right thing to do in this case? Right? So I, I, that, that's definitely a great way of sort of pushing your values and, and really helping develop those things within the organization. Yeah, that's that's a good idea. I I also try to look at things through for the reason of, of the values that we have, but I guess in our case it's not like some of the senior management are more aware of that, and I discuss it with them. But us, it's it's not something that we talk to with all employees about. And I'm actually curious uh, to hear your opinion on how. How do you make decisions? Like, how do you make decisions on a bigger scale for a bigger company by using those values, by using those structures? Like, let's say you have a big decision about like merging with another company or like buying another company or just like committing like a huge chunk of a budget to some new project. What's the, the framework and structure that you find to be good to, to do those decisions? 
Yeah, I mean, I, I fundamentally, when, when you have big decisions, you always want to look back. And like often you want to do it with your management team, right? So you want to sit down with your managers and say, hey, guys, we have this big opportunity, right? Um, one, like if you're looking at buying another company, even the simple question of do they actually align with our values? Like most people, when they do due diligence to buy a business, like they look at the numbers, they look at the operations, they look at the processes, they don't look at the value of the people. Now, you, you've said that in most cases, you don't bring the people a, a, a sort of from, yeah. from their business to yours, right? And that's obviously based on the specific business model on, on buying websites. If you're looking at real businesses, like with operations and so on, right, you really need to spend probably the most amount of time in evaluating the culture, evaluating the the values of that business, right? Because when you're buying a business, like you're in it for the long haul, right? And um, it, it's probably the number one reason why most business acquisition fails. Like when people buy a business that on paper is great, but you know it doesn't end up delivering, it's usually because there's something that either when you're merging two companies or the likes, that there's something in the cultures that just doesn't match. Right. And when you see, like, when you see the biggest companies around making acquisitions, you, you can bet they're really, really big on that. Right. When you see the likes of Google buying a company, like, they're not just buying any random company with a great idea. Like, they really spend a ton of due diligence looking into the culture, looking into the people. Because when, when you're buying a business, really what you're buying is the assets, which one of the primary assets of a business is the people in it right? And if the people in it haven't got a culture that matches yours, and therefore you'll have to let go of them uh, in within the sort of foreseeable future, really, what are you buying? You're buying a business model and you're buying a client list, but is that worth the money? Very often it's not, right? Yeah, I guess in our case, because the, we only deal with businesses under $1 million, so there is usually no uh, there might be a small team, but there is usually no no culture, no values. Like it's not the businesses are not big enough that the owners put a lot of thought on those. Yeah, yeah. So uh, again, in that case, like you're you're probably it's probably not important, right? Because if you're generally not bringing people along, or you have one or two contractors or something like that, right? Yeah. Like. The, the value of that other business, like it will be more like if you're buying a, let's say a SaaS business that have had, you know, a certain reputation, like, like actually go and looking at the reputation. If, if one of your focuses is customer service and you can see they've had a crap customer service department. Now that can be, that can mean two things. It can either mean one, that's not what you want to deal with because you want to have people have good experiences. That's one option. The other option is turning around and say, well, they have crap customer service and our speciality is customer service. So we want to, we want to add significant value to this business by significantly improving their customer service. But either way, if you know upfront what you're walking into, that's the key thing, right? You want to know, am I walking into a bunch of people who have had a crap customer service experience or am I walking into people where you expect, you know, customer service to be amazing, right? Yeah, yeah, I think that makes sense. So in our case, it's usually, it would usually be a maximum of maybe like a few contractors and often they have the previous owner involved either involved in equity and some continued uh, partnership agreement or just involved as a profit participation. So, so usually it would just be the, the previous owner who, who continues some, some involvement in it. Okay, yeah, yeah, and it's a bit different because you can certainly ask the, the seller about, about his values and kind of see if, if there is a good good connection if it's similar but it's a bit different because you know then someone sells a business they are uh, it, it's it's an event that really shifts their their focus their incentives their values so that might change yep yeah I, I totally agree i totally agree 
Okay. Yeah, and yeah, and coming back to the the second the second challenge that I mentioned, finding a COO. I'm curious about your input on that. It probably will help a lot with similar cases. Yeah, and I think um, on, honestly, there's there's a lot of companies going through this phase, right? Like a lot of the businesses I work yeah. with have have gone through this phase, and and I I think fundamentally, again, it's like hiring most other people, but it's a lot more important. Um, and what I see with most of the businesses out there, like again, so the the problem is the risk element from hiring a COO, for example it's significantly higher because if you make a mistake hiring an SEO guy, like it will cost you money, but you can hire a new one and get them to work out if the previous didn't. If you hire a COO in a large company, right? The risk for you is significant because they oversee, they, they will have so much responsibility and it will really significantly impact your operations, right? So, I mean, I'm, I'm always a cautious person, um, more caution than good is always. Um, but, but, but naturally, like, that's the one reason why I love developing people from the inside, because I, I, I like knowing what I'm getting, right? But, but fundamentally, the challenge most people go through is really identify that individual. And um, actually, a lot of people have gone through uh, the likes of DC jobs to find people that are very like-minded and, and find people who already maybe have even run their own business or whatever, but, you know, they've been in a situation where they've had um, similar ownership because be, being a high-level manager or being a manager in a large corporation is far, far the same from man, like being a COO in a 10-man or 20-man company, right? Because the level of responsibility, the level of like if things go wrong, we are screwed kind of thing. Um, that, that level of risk to a smaller business is just so much bigger, right? And therefore you need, like there's a, there's a different level of sort of focus and there's a different level of, of ownership required very often, right? Um, so yeah, but, but I would say like a, a lot of the people that I've worked with, like very often they've either, they've either find, found a good COO either through myself or through sort of these higher level job boards like DC jobs and the likes where, where there is a lot of those uh, like-minded people. So I'm actually going through the process with a, with an e-commerce guy at the moment who is, who is basically hiring his COO. Uh, and that's a seven, eight year old company making uh, a lot of money, but, but he's, he hadn't gotten to that point previously. Right. And he's, he's working on it at, at the moment. And again, we're really trying to make sure that one, the values align with the owner really, really well, right? Also yeah. trying to make sure it's someone who compensates a little bit with the owner's weaknesses. So again, from, from your standpoint, right? Like naturally when you, as a business owner, when you run a company and when, you, uh, when you're building it, it has certain strengths and weaknesses that match your personal strengths and weaknesses, right? And that's natural. So sometimes the, the fundamental question is, do you want to continue having those same strengths and weaknesses? Or is there a different area of the business that it makes more sense to focus on going forward, right? So uh, for example, in a specific case, the guy I'm working with right now, like he, he is not a people person to say it politely. And fundamentally, uh, he he's looking for someone to come in and run his operation who's a lot, lot more people focused, right? So his focus have not necessarily been replicate himself the way he is, but have much more been, you know, find someone, find a good operations manager that can help take this thing to the next level uh, and focusing particularly on finding someone who can, basically do what he isn't in terms of people management, right? Um, so that's, I mean, there's different ways to look at it, right? But that's, that's, that's generally how I go around the process of looking, at, looking for that role and trying to figure out what is it the business need at this point in time. Yeah, that, that sounds reasonable. I think I would, I would also be looking at a similar approach, having someone who 
who is very good at the things that I'm not very good at, like attention to detail and like organizing things so that I can potentially shift more to a strategy, planning, you know, visionary kind of role. Yeah. That does make sense. And, and, and what, so again, most, like if you take a SEO company, right, <laughs> it's funny because most people are like, oh, I need a CEO or I need an operations manager in my business. I need to find an SEO expert. And again, then you go back to the drawing board and say, well, actually, if you want to move your business forward, you need to find a, pe- a person who is not an SEO expert, right? Because again, you have to move away from the mindset of, you know, we are successful because we're great, or like the business or the, the management team is great at SEO, that's why we're successful, to, uh, you know, we are learning business, we are good at business, that's why we're successful. And part of that business is we're great at, at SEO, right? But, but actually, I've worked with three or four SEO companies where the owner have been so much of an SEO and not wanting to let it go that we have actually end up in situations where he have hired like a CEO instead of himself because he wanted to keep doing this, this SEO stuff. That's what he enjoyed doing. And he, he didn't want to be a people manager, right? Like, and uh, that's also an option. But again, then you just need to be aware, like you're not the one building the business, right? Someone else is for you. And, and while you can find other people doing that, it is significantly harder to hire for, right? Because in most cases, you are much more vested in your business than, than outside people are. But, but there's definitely, there's definitely plenty of situation where I've seen that work really well, but there's definitely also situations where it, it can fail, right? But you, if that's the model you go down, you have to be very, very careful with the whole recruitment process, right? Yeah, yeah, I think that's true that that would have to be a person that mostly has the management skills, not necessarily the technical skills when it comes to the actual business because that's the responsibility of other people. Okay, that's good, Michael. Um, What's the biggest management failure you've ever had? I think the biggest, it comes back down to understanding the difference between tasks and responsibilities. Mm-hmm. So early on, I had a few employees and I was giving them tasks and telling them how to do it. But in my mind, I expected that I've given them the responsibility. Like I gave them the task, okay, you go, you build sites, you, you, you do the content, you prepare everything, you, you, know, you set it all up. Uh, and in my mind, I thought that, okay, now I made that person responsible for this whole thing. So then something happens, let's say, you know, site goes down, there is a problem with the hosting or something else. So I expected that person to just go and fix it because he is now responsible. But what I realized is that in their mind, they just had those tasks to do. And they did those tasks like writing articles, uploading articles, setting up sites. And that's it. If there is a problem, that's not their responsibility. So yep. understanding then distinction that I think that was very important one for me. Yeah, and I think particularly when you give people responsibility, you learn to be very, very clear yeah. in pointing out, I am giving, like saying it with human words. And, and it's not much <laughs> different, right? Like actually saying, I'm handing you this responsibility. It's not like well different to giving them a task. But the way you say it, the way you put it across really makes such a huge difference with the level of ownership or the amount of ownership they take over things, right? Yeah, I also try to make it very explicit on all levels. Like when we hire for a position, it's, it's written in the position description, what's the responsibility, what's the scope of responsibility. It's, it's uh, explained during the interviews. And then once the person is, is on board, that it's, it's included in some of their uh, materials, like they have the little employee card and they have the responsibility written down. So try to make it explicit, yeah. That makes a lot of sense. That makes a lot of sense. Michael, I think uh, time is nearly up for us. It has been great talking to you. If, if people are eager to get in touch with you, what's the best ways for them to reach you? 
Yeah, thank you, Matt. It's been a pleasure. So we are actively looking to buy more businesses. If your listeners have a, a content business with organic traffic that is that they are looking to sell, they are very much welcome to come to us just to check if it fits our criteria and then we can give them an immediate purchase offer. And then they don't have to, you know, to pay commission. They don't have to wait months like you would with a brokerage. And we are looking for businesses that make anywhere from about $500 per month in revenue and up to about uh, 50,000 per month in revenue. So they can uh, find us at domainmagnate.com go to domainmagnate.com slash slash sell to submit the report and to contact me uh, you're welcome to just uh, contact through Facebook look me up Michael Bereslavsky uh, you can check my personal website michaelbereslavsky.com yep. or just uh, email me directly michael at domainmagnate.com Perfect. I'll make sure all that is added to the show notes. So thank you very much for being on the show, Michael. It was awesome talking to you again. Thank you. Till next time. Bye. Bye. Thank you for listening to the Mad Singers Management Podcast. Please leave a review. It means the world to us. You can also learn more about management at madsingers.com.